Welcome to the Monogamous Marriage Podcast. We're Kate and Liam, married bisexuals a decade into our non-monogamous journey. We've been having sex with our friends for 10 years, and we're still madly in love with each other. We're the authors of the Monogamous Marriage blog, where we've been overthinking sex and love since 2016. This podcast is the place where we process our sexual adventures in real time. We are not experts, and nothing we say should be mistaken for professional advice. This show contains mature language and sexual content, so if you're under 18, it isn't for you. But if you're a fellow overthinker and you're not freaked out by unfiltered conversation, you're going to feel right at home. Once a season, I get to do interviews that I originally conceived as girl talk sessions with women in the lifestyle. But I recently had a friend say that she hates when people use girl to talk about women. So I'm modifying the title of these interviews to Badass Women of the Lifestyle Sessions. In the past, I've talked to April from Naughty Jim and Rachel Krantz, the author of Open. And today I have the great privilege of sitting down with my friend, Catherine, from Expansive Connection Coaching. She has a practice of five coaches that are committed to helping ethically non-monogamous relationships thrive. Her undergraduate degree is in health promotion, and she has a master's degree in community counseling. She has over 18 years experience as a nationally certified and licensed counselor. She's also a relationship coach and a registered yoga teacher. And she's here to talk to us about using her adult chair approach to coaching, specifically in non-monogamy. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. I will sit down and talk with you whatever we want to call ourselves anytime. All right. Well, you're certainly a (laughs) badass woman of the lifestyle, and we can have girl talk. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) So I first heard about you back in 2017 on the We Got a Thing podcast, and you did a fantastic talk on jealousy, which I listened to three times before I even thought I had a problem with jealousy. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, Thank you. It was so good. So if anyone has experienced any kind of jealousy, insecurity, fear, rearing its ugly head in your non-monogamous relationship, definitely go back and listen to Catherine talking with Mr. and Mrs. Jones about that topic. She does such a great job. And then we got to meet in person at PCAP and we hung out in Miami and Dallas And it just seemed like a no-brainer for us when we did hit a wall, Liam and I, in our relationship, to call you up and say, Catherine, help us. (laughs) So, Oh, yes. But I realized as we were sitting down that I don't actually know too much about you and your story. So give us a little snapshot of who Catherine is, maybe going back to your family of origin, Tell us a little bit about you so that we can get to know you before we get into the nitty gritty of your adult chair stuff. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for asking. And it's interesting. I've been on many podcasts in the ethically non-monogamous space and I've told my story about ethical non-monogamy many times. No one's ever asked me about who I am outside of that or before. So thank you. And I think I will will share, we'll keep most of my sharing on that because people can go back and listen to, especially if they're going to hear the jealousy episode, which just for ease is number 41 on We Got a Thing. Um, you can hear more about my journey there. So yeah, thank you for, for starting with that. And especially with the topic that we've chosen to discuss today about our inner parts and our inner, inner children and inner teenagers that live in us. It is helpful when I work with clients, I really ask them to go back and be introduced themselves to those parts of themselves. So what a great way to ask me to introduce myself. Um, so I am an, I'm an only child. My parents were a little older when they had me back in the seventies. It seemed like they were older. It certainly wouldn't be now. My dad was an active alcoholic and cocaine addict for the first four years of my life. And my mom was a classic people pleaser, enabler, codependent that, you know, was trying to do all the things with hopes that he would be better for her and for us. And eventually he realized that he was going to lose us. And that was the, the motivator that got his butt in into rehab. And he f- found a phenomenal therapist that I grew up hearing about my whole life, which I definitely think planted some seeds for my career choice about how influential Joyce was to my dad and really helped him see how getting clean was for him. And so I grew up in a household 
talking about recovery, about 12 steps. I also had alcoholism on my mother's side that was not addressed. And so I was seeing both sides of, of that. And I'm an only child. My, my parents were older. They didn't have friends that had children. So I was around adults a lot and I felt very comfortable around adults. I felt really awkward around my peers, honestly, until I was about 25. I didn't really get it. I have a memory of being t- being taken to a preschool. It must have been four or five. I remember walking in and just kind of standing back and watching the scene. And I remember seeing like kids running around and like banging into each other and making noises. And I was like, really? And I went up and I talked to one of the teachers. And my mom told me later that the teacher was like, yeah, so your daughter keeps asking if she can eat lunch with us. Because <laughs> I just, I felt comfortable. I knew how to be a little adult. I was raised to be a little adult. I didn't know how to play. I didn't know how to be silly. I just, I could hang with the adults. Some people called that old soul. I don't know. And I was always a person that um, friends and even adults, to be honest with you, disclosed a lot of information. I was very much parentalized, which is a word we use in counselories land, land in, in the therapy land, where my parents were very much still growing up themselves and leaned on me a lot. Um, talked to me about, honestly, now I can see way too much and things that were inappropriate, but it made me feel special. It made me feel needed. It made me feel like I had a role. It It's how I assessed closeness was that how much they talked to me about grown up things, which, you know, still showing up in my relationships. I want a lot of verbal processing <laughs> with my partners. And then I got into athletics. Uh, I was a dancer, a ballet dancer and modern dancer for most of my life, most of my childhood. And then I got into sports in high school and running and went to a summer camp right after high school to teach, um, to be a lifeguard. And the aerobics instructor got sick and had to leave. And I worked out every day. So they're like, well, you work out, you can go teach aerobics. It's like, I don't know how to do that, but I was a dancer and I was athletic. So I did it and I loved it. And I ended up teaching the kids about exercise and lifting and, and stress reduction. I taught a class about stress reduction to kids at a summer camp when I was 18 years old. And I loved that. So I ended up going changing my major from international business to health promotion, exercise science. And I loved that. I did my internship at the White House Athletic Center, which is a fun fact. And, and we didn't work with the president or anything, but we worked with his staff and had to work with the head of the Navy mess. So I knew what the president and all of his, his people like to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Those are always fun conversations, which is a wonderful job. But what I would find is I was a terrible personal trainer because I'm supposed to be there counting the reps of biceps, but we would get into such deep conversations that I'd forget to count. And one of the, at one <laughs> point, somebody's like, this is more like therapy than personal training. So that's what led me to go back and get my master's in counseling. And so through that in my career, I've worked with all sorts of different populations. Um, I've always been a, I would say a, a seeker and a grower, a, a growth mindset person. I struggled. I, I still sometimes struggle. Not now I've found my tribe, but there have been times I've had a hard time finding my tribe of women because I can't stand to take time and be in close, intimate proximity with people that want to talk about like the oak back end smell of a wine. Like, I'm like, really? I thought wine club was just an excuse to talk about real stuff. Why are we talking about wine? <laughs> or I'd go to a book club and be like, oh, you guys actually read the book? I thought we were here to just talk. <laughs> um, and so, of course, it was natural that I would love this profession because people pay me to sit down and talk about really deep, intimate things. And the last thing they want to do is pay me by the minute to do small talk. So I've definitely found my calling. <laughs> And then, of course, stumbled into ethical non-monogamy, and that created this whole other career path for me to help people with that. I will say one other thing. When I was in grad school, I used to get in trouble for self-disclosure. You're not supposed to do that. And that was always the feedback that I would get when I would get in, quote, trouble in my my supervision. And then ironically, when I started working clinically, the people that really clicked with me and really loved my work. That's always what they said. I love that you're so real. I love that you'll talk about what's going on in your life because I don't feel so alone. And I wanted to go back and like, you know, show that to my professors, but I understand why they did it. And you certainly have to be careful and make sure that the self-disclosure is about the therapeutic process, not to show up and be, you know, get therapy yourself. 
but that really led to this, to why I started Expansive Connection and the coaches that I brought on, because we are all on an ethically non-monogamous journey and we're willing to be open and talk about it. So it's like, we're walking on a path, you're walking on a path, we'll walk with you. And that's what led to the, to that business and the, the people that I, wonderful coaches that I've gathered to, to help me when that work. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so let's get into talking about your adult chair approach to coaching. Um, mm-hmm. So I recently read Dick Schwartz's book, No Bad Parts, about the mm-hmm. internal family systems approach. And mm-hmm. having worked with you and your adult chair, I was thinking, okay, so there are a lot of similarities, but a few differences. So can you tell mm-hmm. us what's the difference and what are the similarities between IFS and what you do? Yes. Okay. So first of all, um, I always get accused of counselorese. So we're going to, we're going to mm-hmm. always try to remind people of our acronyms. A- IFS is inter- internal family systems. And I also want to say that the adult chair is not my model. It's one that I love and I recommend all the time. And one of, I made sure that one of my coaches is certified in because we use it all the time. So the adult chair was actually developed by Michelle Chalfant and she has a wonderful podcast. I recommend it highly. And she took the model that she created. She was trained in IFS. She was um, trained in gestalt therapy, which I'm trained in as well, which is a a much older therapy from Fritz Perls back in the 60s, where he would use literal chairs in the room and you would get up and you would. So let's say you were having a, a dialogue with a part of yourself. You would sit in one chair as, say, the child and one chair as the adult. And you would literally have to move in the therapist's office to help you kinesthetically see the difference. They also would have an empty chair sessions where you would put your your father you know, in that chair and you'd quote, speak to your father, but you needed to be looking at something that way. And so she took gestalt, she took inner family systems, and then she also teaches yoga and has meditation and mindfulness practices. And so she wove all of this into a model called the adult chair. And so, but the basis of all of this is that IFS, gestalt, the adult chair, is that we have these different parts of us still live within us. And sometimes that sounds like we're talking about multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder. It's not that because in, in a dissociative identity or multiple personality disorder, when, when up, which is very, 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 very rare, when someone is in that other personality, they are completely disassociated or unaware of reality and who they are. Catherine, in December of 2023, like that does, that's gone. They're completely this other personality. When we're talking about IFS or Gestalt or the adult chair, we are still aware of who we are, when we are. It's more like we're working to have an adult in the room. <laughs> I like to call it the benevolent leader. So when I work with people, I give them the example of maybe it's a king or queen with the round table of advisors or um, in the in the States, we would have the president with the different secretaries, secretary of defense, secretary of agriculture. Another example would be the president of a company, a CEO of a, of a company and the different department heads. So we want to have a benevolent leader sitting at the head of the table. And then IFS, the adult chair, the basic idea and the similarity between the two is that they want you to to get to know and personify the different parts of you and realize that these different parts around the table often don't agree. They often have their own agenda, much like you can imagine the fights that the secretary of defense and the secretary of agriculture might have. And you want to have them to be very passionate about defense and very passionate about agriculture. And they don't have to necessarily get along, but they need to have the trust of the benevolent leader to hear them, hear all of them and make a decision that fits, that is the best for the country, if you will. So honestly, I think I, I use the adult chair more than IFS because I think it's a more simplified version and I think people can grasp on. There aren't as many different terms and characters, if you will. And I just, it seems to me that especially at first brush, people can get on board with the adult chair. And if they really like it, then I send them to IFS. So I would say adult chair is like the elementary school version and IFS is going to be more like the high school deeper dive into, into really uh, quantifying the parts, uh, putting them into different categories and that sort of thing. I will also mention that 
while the adult chair model, I think is wonderful, it has pure, it has the child, the adolescent and the adult. I found in my work with clients that it was missing a part. And so when I teach, I have a webinar called musical chairs, which we'll, we'll share in the, in the show notes where I add, I added a part and that's called the adaptive child. And so we, we'll get into those a little bit more, but so I, I pull from Gestalt, I pull from IFS, I pull from the adult chair. And then of course, as we all do, we have to make it a little our own. So I added an extra character to the, to the play there. Right. So I guess the commonality is it acknowledges that there's kind of a, a central self, you know, Schwartz would call it the self, mm-hmm. um, you would call it the person in the adult chair. And then, and then that is you at your core, your truest being. And then there are all these different voices that have maybe different opinions that come from different stages of your development. And they are kind of whirling around, sometimes warring in your mind. Is that mm-hmm. kind of the the core of all of these therapies? Yes, although I will say at first when you say like your purest self, when you're first doing this, you're a, when you're when you have your butt in the adult chair, it may not feel very comfortable or familiar because you honestly may not have spent much time there. So in my model I say pure child chair and so when I hear pure I tend to think of that as pure joy, pure sadness, pure fear. It isn't as, as influenced by nature, if you will. It's more, I mean, it's more like your nature, not your nurture. It's your, it's your more at your core. And the, but our goal is to spend, as we learn this, to spend more and more time as our adults. So I would say your adult is maybe not your pure is a funny word. It's more like your wisest self the part of you that is going to lead you to the healthiest and most productive decisions. Okay. So you've mentioned the adaptive child, the snarky Mm -hmm. teenager. Can you go into just a little more depth on each of these characters so we can maybe recognize them more clearly in ourselves? Yes. So we'll start with the pure child. If you think about yourself, maybe at four, let me also mention this. You can absolutely use this model whether you're a parent or not. But I will say that when I work with people who are parents, sometimes they're able to grasp this better when we talk about what their children were like, because sometimes it can be harder for us to remember what we were like ourselves. Um, I also encourage people to, to get pictures of themselves at these different life stages so that they can cultivate even more compassion for them. When I'm working with parents, I'll, you know, have them picture their child at four and imagine talking to their four year old child as with as much harshness as we often our, our inner critics are saying to us, right? So think about yourself or your child at four. And this is just wild-eyed, pure excitement and joy for the world, believing everything is possible, an absolute hope junkie. This is something you'll hear later as when we're talking about as adults, how we can fuel things and get just so hopeful about them. And then we create expectations and hurt ourselves. But there's just this, oh, just this blissful blossoming excitement and curiosity it's the it's the pureness of sadness it's the pureness of fear it's clean anger like that's my toy we don't have to get into whether it should be or you should share with your brother it's my toy and i want it just clean anger and that part is precious and that part is very vulnerable and very sensitive, very easy to hurt. And as much as we would love to be able to just keep that joy and that innocence, there's the world. And our parents with their own unmet needs and mental health issues and distractions and substance use and blah, 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 and all the things that can hurt this very sweet, vulnerable, sensitive part. So as we are moving through the world, then there are these protector parts that come out to protect this pure, sweet child. And the protector parts in my model, they're, I mostly keep them at two. Again, once people get this model, we bring in more nuance. We, we look at IFS and we bring in, you know, the firefighters and the managers and the different names, or I tend to, I actually have a, um, a critical professor that sits as one of my protectors. So 
generally we start with these two and then you can add them and sort of personalize them to yourself. But generally we have our adaptive child. And I like to think of this as a child in those, what we call the golden years of childhood, that, you know, maybe like seven to 11, the part of our childhood where we're rule followers. We believe that if we just do the right thing, everything will work out well, very cause and effect, very concrete. Um, it's either right or wrong. Um, you know, when our kids are that age and they, you know, they see us, you know, saying no smoking, no smoking, no smoking. And then they see that we're okay with our parents that still smoke. I remember my daughter saying, but smoking's bad. So we need to hate granddaddy Mark, right? <laughs> like, no, 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 no. But you know, in the, those years, it doesn't make sense. If smoking's bad, then we should hate people that smoke. And so that part that's very rule following, um, very concrete. It's also the part that learns the dog and pony show that the adults like the, how to, how to perform, how to hustle for attention and affection how to fold ourselves into a pretzel and then we get attention for it and we remember how to fold that, right? So this is a, a part that really wants to get along. It wants approval. It wants life to be joyful and easy and easy to understand. Then we have the other protector of our pure child, which is the snarky adolescent or teenager. And this is the part that's like, you know, going to do anything and everything it can to keep this kid safe. And if somebody is uh, being nasty or mean, we'll be more mean and more nasty. If somebody says that they don't love the child, well, fuck you, I'm going to leave first. This is that part of us that tends to be self-sabotaging. Like, oh, I'm scared they might leave. I'm scared they might hurt me, pure child. They might hurt my pure child. So I'll leave first because at least I have some control. It's usually the part of us that it's like the we cut off our nose to spite our face. That's usually a, a snarky teen kind of thing to do. Um, snarky teen adolescent loves to use blame, blaming anyone other than themselves because that's safer. And again, it's all done to protect this this pure child. This the the, the snarky adolescent is where we get into complicated anger. Remember, I talked about clean anger in the pure child. The adolescent is more of a complicated anger, meaning we might act angry when we're sad. We might act angry when we're scared. So it's not, it's not just clean, pure anger. It's more like a, a constellation emotion where it's hiding something else, but it gets attention. And another thing that can happen is if the, in our, in our attempt to have attention and affection and connection with the people around us, if the adaptive child's tactics of folding themselves into a pretzel and being pleasing and fawning and lovey, if that doesn't get us the intention that we're looking for, then the snarky adolescent's going to push her aside and be like, let's try this. And they're going to get big and loud and get the attention because negative attention is better than no attention. So that's the difference in the flavors of those. And then, of course, our wise adult can see that all this is happening. It's kind of like top row of the bleachers, as I talk about in my power of witness coaching model of the, the wise adult can sit at the top row of the bleachers and see the games that our characters are playing and help moderate what's happening. Now, one thing that I often have clients say after I explain this is, okay, cool. So how do we get rid of the snarky adolescent? Clearly that's the problem. <laughs> Can we just extricate that from our brains? And I'm like, no, and nor would you want to because nobody loves that pure child like the adaptive child and the snarky teen. That is like your internal mama bear. Now, you don't want your mama bear to go fight all your battles or everything would have lots of claw marks on it, right? But that level of love, that's actually where our self-love is. We love ourselves enough to protect ourselves. So we don't want that part to go away. We want that part to trust the benevolent adult, tell them when something feels off. We want to create enough trust and rapport with these parts of us that they will let us speak for them. Instead of grabbing the mic from us, we want to speak for our parts, not from them. And that's how we're able to have adult level communication and make wise decisions because we've heard what everybody around the table has to say, but the adult is the one that is trusted to make the decision. Which is hard because <laughs> when you're cool and 
removed from the situation, you can sit in that adult chair and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw my snarky adolescent come out there. But in the heat of the moment, to try and rein that in, it feels almost impossible. It just comes out, you know, I'm scared. And so I'm going to be angry because that's safer. And to try and keep your cool head in the moment when you're in the midst of conflict or in the midst of fear and sit in that adult chair, even when the parts are screaming to come out, that's that's the work we all have to do, isn't it? <laughs> Whew, it's so hard. If we think about how the brain develops, the pure child is more like our our primal lizard brain, the part that's just about survival. And then the protector parts, the adaptive child and the snarky teen, the protector parts are a little more like the middle of the brain with like emotional memory and the amygdala. But keep in mind, amygdala is all about fight or flight. So again, remember concrete, black or white, fight or flight, binary, you either love me or you don't. This is right or wrong. And so we are, once we are, once we're activated, once we're triggered, yes, it's very hard to stay up in the front smart part of our brain that understands paradox and can see things from different sides and the gray and all that because the lower parts of our brain have been activated to say there's a threat. So we need to fight or flight. We need to freeze or fawn. We need to act like a snarky teenager to get our needs met or fold ourselves in a pretzel like an adaptive child to get our needs met. And so when you say it's hard to do that, part of it is it's hard because there's not much blood left up here where we're able to do that. We're trying to get this part online. When I work with clients, one of the things that we do when we say it's so hard to be there is sometimes I'll give them very cognitive exercises. And when they first start doing them, these very intelligent people feel like there's these exercises are impossible because there's no blood up here where you need it. But as I'm asking them to do those exercises, it's pulling blood there, which helps to, as we say, kind of get your lid on. If you look, if you've got your fist, your wrist is your brainstem, your primal brain, the, the pure child, the middle here where your thumb is, that's going to be your middle brain, your amygdala, the, the, the fight or flight. And then as our brain develops, we develop this beautiful prefrontal cortex that brings the fingers over the, over the thumb to make a fist. And that's the adult. And then once we flip our lid, now the bottom of the brain is what's driving the train. And it is very hard to stay in our adult. So honestly, when I work with clients, it's more about helping them notice which chair they're in. So then they know what activities are appropriate. If your protector parts are activated, honestly, it's not the time to be duking it out with your spouse. That's when you got to go to your corners and you both do some cognitive exercises. You do some physical exercises to roll through those stress hormones so that you can, whatever it is to get your lid back on. So really the idea of like in the midst of argument, if you get activated and triggered, it isn't like this willpower of I can stay in my adult chair. No, you're already out of it. So go away and don't do any more damage to the relationship until you can come back as adults. Yeah, I was going to ask, what <laughs> what tips or skills or tricks would you give people for when you're in that moment, when you know you're flipped and you're in your snarky adolescent? Is there anything you can do in that moment or is the best thing just to walk away, cool down and come back together when you're individually back in control? For the most part, yes. I mean, well, first of all, let me say, we're skipping over the hardest thing, which is learning the self-awareness to realize that we've flipped, to realize which chair we're in. Most of us, and again, that's why Michelle Shelfont so brilliantly brings in mindfulness and meditation into her model, because we have to cultivate our observer self that knows, whoa, something's weird. I don't usually think about my partner as my enemy. Something must be going on. Oh, I'm in a different chair. Or, wow, I'm noticing that my jaw is clenched like crazy. This could be a sign that I'm activated. Just realizing that we're activated and triggered is a huge part of the work. So let's not go over that too fast. Once you do have that awareness and you realize it, for the most part, oh, let me also say this fun little piece. When we find our, our intimate partners, there's a, uh, Harville Hendricks, uh, Helen and Harville Hendricks is a married couple that has given so much to the, to the world of couples therapy. They have an Imago model that talks about how our unconscious 
brains, our, our inner child, if you will, unconsciously pairs with a partner that helps to kind of recreate some of the situation of our childhood so that we can then try to have a corrective experience and get our needs met. It's a little complicated for the scope of our conversation here, but keep in mind that your partner is perfectly designed to trigger the shit out of your adolescent and adoptive (laughs) child. And yours is perfectly designed to trigger the shit out of theirs. And so really, if you think about it, once once you're both triggered, you are either seven-year-olds or 16-year-olds with boxing gloves. And there is nobody that you want to punch out more than your partner. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. Honestly, that means that there's the right kind of passion because passion is either fucking or fighting. We do have to be careful and realize that um, it's pretty rare, that, especially if you're both flipped, that you can stay in physical proximity. Sometimes you can do it if one of you hasn't completely flipped yet. And if that's the case, sometimes you can do some some couples regulation activity. Um, this is something that my coaches and I teach, especially when we go to PCAP and you know, when we go to Jamaica for being being better at being bad with Naughty Jim. We often teach about how to co-regulate. But you got to be careful because sometimes just being in the room with that person is going to keep you from getting right, is going to keep you dysregulated. Yeah. Or when you feel like, all right, my my lid's back on. I'm ready to talk about mm-hmm. this. As soon as they say one thing wrong, that's it. You're right back there. Yeah. So it's Absolutely. tricky. Mm-hmm. It is. It is for sure. In June of 2023, we launched a brand new venture called Sapio Tours. And the concept is that we would take small groups of non-monogamous couples to European destinations of cultural and historical interest. These trips are different from your regular lifestyle vacation, partly because the groups are small, but partly because it does not take place against the backdrop of thumping bass and drunken parties. So in the coming year, we are going back to Crete. That trip sold out very quickly, but we are putting together a wait list. So if you desperately want to go to Crete with us in 2024, you can get in touch and we'll put you on that list. And if there are enough people on the wait list eventually, we will add a second week. So don't give up. The trip we are currently selling, though, is to Tuscany. We are going to go August 17th to 24th to the center of Italy. We're going to have excursions to Florence, San Gimignano, Pisa. There are all kinds of wonderful things to see, do, and taste in Tuscany. And we're going to do a little bit of everything. So what do people do if they want to participate in a Sapio Tours trip to Europe? Well, the first thing is to go to sapiotours.com and there you'll find the information about the tours we're currently selling. So you will book a 30-minute Zoom call with us. It's an opportunity for us to get to know you, but also for you to get to know us. So go to sapiotours.com to our Contact Us page and you can send us an email or you can automatically book a 30-minute time slot. And now, back to the Monogamish Marriage Podcast. As I was listening to you talk about the parts, I completely resonated with the adaptive child to the point where I felt like, well, that is me entirely. So is it possible for people to get so stuck in these adaptive roles and so comfortable there that they don't even know who they are beyond that role? Or can it feel like the entirety of your personality and that you haven't quite discovered yet who you are (laughs) outside of this adaptation. Absolutely. And especially, I think the adaptive child is especially tricky to move beyond. And when I say move beyond, I don't mean we get rid of it, but, you know, to be able to cultivate that observer self to see that these were once adaptive behaviors that eventually become maladaptive. It's really tricky for women. Because if you think about that skill set of the adaptive child, you know, pleasing and, and being intuitive and guessing what somebody would want and folding yourself into that pretzel and going along and those sorts of things. Those skills are so championed in our society. Or well, if you live in a patriarchal society, those skills are really championed in women. And so then it keeps our, our sweet little pure child protected. Then we also are getting um, praised for it. We're getting accolades. It's not just about safety now. It's also those skills become skills that help us thrive 
But the thriving is so much because we're in a patriarchal society. Like we're thriving because we're a good girl. Ooh. So when you have the fact that it's keeping you safe, you've got survival on your side and you're thriving and getting praised for it, it can be very hard to see it as quote bad or it's not bad. It's just it can become maladaptive to the point where you lose yourself or you feel like you're betraying someone if you have needs because you're not supposed to have needs because that's really inconvenient because how are you going to please others if you have needs and then they don't get along? Yeah. And if you live your entire life in relationship and in society where you're getting praised and positive feedback and rewarded for these pleasing behaviors, as a child, I was very much like you, a parentified child, the oldest Mm -hmm. of six. So rather than being the Mm -hmm. only child, I was mommy number two to all the younger kids. So you get rewarded for being responsible and taking care of everyone and being selfless. You become very attuned to your parent because that attunement keeps you safe. Um, when you have a parent who is emotionally reactive or maybe a little mm-hmm. bit immature, um, and you choose partners that mirror this because that feels safe. That's what you're used to. So you become a parent to your partner and you are the responsible one in the relationship. And then you go into the world and being responsible and taking care of other people is exactly what you're supposed to be doing when you're an amazing teacher. Um, Every relationship, every place I find myself, my job, the world, my marriages, as a mother, Mm -hmm. I'm rewarded for this adaptive child behavior. And I don't even know who the fuck I am beyond it. How do I figure out who I am, Catherine? (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that that background that I'm sure will resonate with many people in your audience. Uh, I will mention that um, there's a book that I recommend all the time for people who really learn to overly rely, in my opinion, on their adaptive child skill set. And it's called The Drama of the Gifted Child. Now, this is a translated book and title. Yes, it's a translated book and title. So the, the title's a little confusing in our language. By gifted, I thought it meant academically gifted because, you know, of course, academics are everything, right? But really what they mean by that is, by gifted is, um, it's more like gifted in perception or you might say it, the, the drama of the overly responsible child, the drama of the perfected child, I think would be better translations. And it is that idea that you learn that if you can figure out what your parents need, then yes, you can stay in attunement, you can avoid conflict, you can get love and attention and and praise and approval, because as a kid, we think all those are the same thing. One of the things we learn in the adult chair is that love and approval are different planets. Watch out, this is going to blow your mind. Love and approval are different planets. And the weather system on planet approval cannot actually affect the the climate on planet love. So think about your children. You love them. Mm. And even if they did something horrible, terrible, awful, you know, they're in prison for murder, your planet approval is a hot mess because you do not approve of that. You are so distraught that they have done these things. But planet love hasn't changed. But as a kid, we don't understand that. We think that approval, that attention, that attunement, that lack of conflict means love. So we hustle to do all the approval-seeking things so that we feel loved and therefore safe because they're not going to leave us if we're if we're lovable. So the drama they give to child, it's a pretty short book, but damn, it will it will sit you down. Okay, so you're asking me how you find yourself. I do think that book really helps because it helped me understand where that behavior came from, why I was doing it. It's also interesting because she's calling out parents and therapists. So I was reading it like threefold. I'm reading it as little Catherine. I'm reading it as Catherine the mother and Catherine the therapist because they say a lot of people who are 
that gifted child often ends up becoming therapist types or, or in clergy or something like that, where we want to have that approval by helping in that way or teachers. And she challenges us to say, you know, how are you exploiting your clients or your students to feel needed and get your needs met? And it's like, Oh God. And are you doing this to your children? Are you oh asking God. them to, to be less of who they are so that you can feel needed and approved? It's like, ouch, ouch, Alice Miller, stop. I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I think that book's a great start. Again, Michelle Chalfant's brilliant idea to bring mindfulness and meditation. It's really cultivating, as you've heard me say, that observer self, that part of us that can watch ourselves play our own games. Or when we, we start to have an observer self, we might do the same thing with the same friend that we've always done. But there's something in us that's like, this doesn't quite feel right. Like, Am I being true to myself here? It just starts to ask these questions. And so what we want to do is start to realize that this observer self really, that's, it's like the, the beginning of that adult chair, that wise, benevolent leader. Uh, again, we're not getting rid of your adaptive child. She has served you really well. And the first thing we want to do when we start to address these parts is thank them. They've done so much good. They have kept us so safe and protected in really tough and awful situations growing up and in adolescence. And it's helped you thrive and be a great teacher and a great mother and a great partner. So we can't just say, like, you're a bad girl, adaptive child. Quit that shit. We thank her. We listen to what she's trying to get us to do. And then the adult says, is there a way where I can still stay true to myself, protected without having to hustle and fold myself into a pretzel? Yeah. Just that. It's tricky. <laughs> just that. It's just so that tricky. little, little thing. So, well, I was going to say, I know we're having a badass women in the lifestyle girl talk, but I do want to say that, that adaptive child shows up in men as well. And I work with a lot of men. Right. I, I tend to work honestly more with men than women. This is where we get into the No More Mr. Nice Guy, which is a book that I recommend to almost every every man that I've worked with. And that's where men learn that the way to protect their pure child is to be Mr. Nice Guy. And Mr. Nice Guy is not the opposite of Mr. Asshole. Like a lot of the women I've worked with, they're like, wait, I saw this book. Are you trying to tell my husband to stop being nice? And I'm like, yes, actually, because nice is not what we want. Kind, clear, direct, and firm. Yes. Nice, not so much because usually when we're being nice, we're sacrificing or betraying ourselves. And so men do this as well. And they learn passivity. They learn to go along to get along. They learn to just to be the knight in shining armor, uh, never have their own needs. And that doesn't last for long. To, honestly, for me, when I see the no more Mr. Nice guy that was, was an adaptive child, is it has his adaptive child as the leader. We are careening fast for a destructive midlife crisis, usually, if they don't, mm. if they don't do the work. Because I think with women, it's like we can go along longer being adaptive, using our adaptive child skills because we're championed for those as women in a patriarchal society. But when men are trained to be Mr. Nice Guys with their adaptive child skills, those skills are somewhat championed in a patriarchal society, but not all the way for men. So then there is this tension between that and, and often because men have been socialized to not be as tuned into what's going on. It's like they're passive, they're passive, they're passive. And then there's this explosion where they blow everything up. I see a lot of that. And also I'll say that most of the time men, if they're going to have a protector part that's louder, Often theirs is more of that rebellious, snarky teenager because men are going to be more championed for being that strong. I've got a voice. I'll, I'll stick it to the man. Like they're going to get more championing for that than if a woman's doing that because she, then she's just a loud bitch, right? Not to say that some of us women don't have some really loud, snarky adolescents. I will raise my hand. <laughs> have a, whoo, the, the sharp tongue on that one. Wow. Don't get in a debate with me if my lid is flipped. <laughs> Well, you know, as the adaptive child, I so admire the women who can stand up for themselves and just say, no, fuck you. <laughs> I wish I could do that more. <laughs> well, but honestly, what I end up doing when that happens, it might look attractive to you. But again, remember that cutting off the nose to spite the face, how many times I've shot myself in the foot or my sharp tongue has really come back and cut me or cut someone out of my life, or I've hurt someone that I love with those sharp words or whatever. And so really, we don't want either one of those driving the train. Now, 
you can admire, I hope that you will, and I'll be absolutely fine with you admiring me in my adult chair when I'm kind and firm and have boundaries and say, I'm sorry, that's not going to work for me. We're going to have to have this. But if I'm saying, fuck you, I'm probably hurting myself. (laughs) You see the difference? (laughs) I won't cultivate that too much. So I do want to get into how we can use this adult chair parts work most effectively in lifestyle situations. You know, we encounter all kinds of hangups and setbacks, um, especially as women, I think, um, with insecurities around body image and losing the security of our relationship with our, Mm -hmm. our partner. And I imagine these inner parts, these protective parts probably come up even more in lifestyle situations. There are so many ways to be triggered. This is a big question, but (laughs) what are some of the ways you think that this can be most helpfully used in lifestyle situations? Yes. Okay. So first of all, I want to say, let's not forget the pure child when we talk about lifestyle situations, because remember Mm -hmm. how I said, I didn't really know how to play. I didn't get that. I figured out how to play when I got into lifestyle. (laughs) Like that's why they call it that, that joy, that excitement, that Mm -hmm. fun, being fully in our bodies, like using the blood that rushes to all of our erotic zones helps us get in our bodies in ways that us, you know, nerdy intellectuals didn't know how to do. So the pure child freaking loves the lifestyle in that way because we get to play and we get to be responsibly irresponsible and we get to, ooh, it also can be, you can feel a lot of pure fear because you may see your partner doing something that this little kid doesn't understand. Remember the little kid that says, mine. This is a my toy and I don't want to share it. And then you're like, I'm having so much fun. All these people want to play with me, but wait, that's my toy. Bring him back to me. <laughs> right? <laughs> so this part, it's like they love it. But they're also like so confused because there are things that quote shouldn't be happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be pure sadness, you know, of being rejected in, in lifestyle. And so the pure child is going to feel a lot of feels, but honestly, for some of us, it's a breath of fresh air because our protector parts had gotten so strong and rigid. One of the ways that they protected the pure child was keep her locked up in a room somewhere so she wouldn't get hurt, wrapped in bubble wrap. So we didn't play. We didn't feel all the feels. We were safe. We were secure, but we weren't getting to run around the house and be pure children. So there is a beauty in what the lifestyle and ethical nominogamy can bring to the pure child. So because the pure child is now feeling all these feels and is not, in fact, in the addict in wrapped in bubble wrap, the protectors are like, oh, fuck, our job just got so much harder (laughs) because now they have this wild little child running around, getting hurt, having fun. Oh, my gosh, what could happen? So now in some of the ways that in our very safe modern adult society, we've been able to keep the pure child safe. And so then the protectors didn't need to be out and about all the time and everything felt really stable. Woo! The house just got loud. (laughs) Kids running around. The adaptive child is rushing after trying to clean up after her. And then the adolescent is screaming and saying, fuck you and throwing dishes and all this stuff, right? One time I had somebody say, oh my gosh, you know, after the work we did on those parts, we had the best play experience. I went to a party and it went great. And I was like, awesome. What'd you do? And he's like, it was so easy. Before I left, I just did this journaling that you told me to do between my parts. And I visualized chaining up my adolescent in the basement. I chained him up, no food, no water. And I went out and had a blast and told him he was not invited to the party. And I was like, okay, okay. (laughs) And I I was like, how are things going? He's like, still great. And I was like, when was the party? Yesterday. And I'm like, oh God, oh God, that teenager is going to come up the stairs so hungry and pissed. (laughs) I was like, dude, we're not trying to get rid of them and we don't want to punish them. (laughs) We need to, we need to manage them. Yes. But this is not, it's not a long-term solution. Um, So yes, when you say there's so many things that can trigger us. Yes. And that's why these protector parts get loud and about town more than maybe they have before. 
So is there anything you can do maybe in debriefing with your partner that will help mm-hmm. you process or avoid oh, that hungry teenager coming up from the basement mm-hmm. and throwing a tantrum? Mm-hmm. Is there something we can do to, you know, to work through these things before they become a problem? Oh, absolutely. And first of all, as you heard me mention when I worked with this couple, I mean, it sounds crazy. Talk to yourself. Talk to your parts. For a lot of people, journaling works well. For some people, talking works well. Michelle Chauffant, if the listeners go back and listen to some of her, especially her earlier episodes, she has this beautiful visualization that she shares that as she was learning this, it was when her sons were still young and they were in the back seat, and she's driving them to school and her boys would get out. And then she would imagine little Michelle getting in the front seat because back then little kids could sit in the front seat and her little pigtails with the little lunchbox and she'd sit in the front and she's like so the way from the way home from school or from school to home I would just chit chat with this part of me and I get to know her again and this is the part that people think is kind of (laughs) weird that you would have to kind of reintroduce yourself to your parts but if you think about it these parts for most of us We didn't really learn to have a whole lot of trust for adults consistently. And again, we're talking about the middle or the lower brain. So we lack a specificity and we lack linear time when we're in that part of the brain. That's why a garden hose would make me jump just as much as a snake if I'm if I'm already triggered and activated. So really, those parts learn that all adults sound like the Charlie Brown teachers. There's no differentiation that this this adult could be trusted any more than our parent who was uncomfortable with our needs or our expressions of emotion. So part of it is like when I talk about like cultivating the trust with these parts, this becomes a daily practice. And this is way before you show up at PCAP or you show up at a hotel takeover, or you show up at a, at a separate date or you send your partner off for a separate date. This becomes a daily practice for a while. I listened when I was first starting to do really dig into parts work. My first big explosion with jealousy led me to this and really got me through. I was listening to the adult chair at least every day. And some of the episodes over and over, but she has so many that I just, I needed to hear that vernacular daily to remind me to think like that. Then I started doing some of the visualizations. She has a wonderful meditation about meeting your inner child that I used over and over and over. I still use it sometimes years and years later. Then I started journaling with my parts. So my journal often looks like a play, Uh, what do you call that? Script? Um, Yeah. Screenplay or script, yeah? Screenplay, yeah. Script or screenplay. So it'll have me, and that's adult me. I'll usually start with, all right, girls, what do you think about my boyfriend's reaction to blah, blah, blah? Or like, what do you think about the party? Or what do you think about what mom said about da, da, da? Because when you journal, sometimes we we lose the the umph of our journal because we, or at least I used to think I needed to journal like Laura Ingalls Wilder writing my memoirs. And so I'd write all the details of that fight I had with my mom or what my boyfriend said or what my kid did. And by the time I'd gotten through all the story, my hand hurt. I was done. I was bored. And I heard this great tip that therapeutic journaling, you know, you're doing it right. If you go back and read your journals five years later and you're like, what was I upset about? What happened in that fight with mom? It doesn't matter. We're using therapeutic journaling to get at what's happening at the moment with our emotions. Okay. So, all right, girls, what, how do you feel about the fight with mom on Saturday? And then I use T for teen and I use A for adaptive child and I use C for, for my pure child. And I start a dialogue first. I'll never forget the first time I did this. I was sitting outside of my counselor's office after a session and he had recommended this. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to try it. And I wrote, Hey girls, what do you think about? I honestly don't even remember what I was upset about. What do you think about whatever? And my adaptive child, because she's a rule follower, she had all sorts of things to say. And then I did T for teen and all I could think to write was I roll. I was like, okay. So it seems like, you don't really want to talk right now. And then I wrote, (laughs) I was like, are you thinking I won't listen? And then teen writes, you are such a motherfucking sucker and you will bend over and take it from anybody. So I'm not going to even bother telling you because you won't listen. And I was like, damn girl. So like you had some things you needed me to hear. (laughs) So you start this dialogue and it may be slow going. Um, and then when you're leading up to an event or a date or something like that, when you've already had this practice, 
it's a great way to organize. People will be like, I feel like I'm crazy. We'll be getting ready for the party and I'm so excited and I'm so turned on and I can't wait. And I imagine my partner and I'm like, this is going to be so hot. And then we're in it and I'm like, I hate him and I hate her and I want to go home. And I then I get home and I'm like, why did I leave? I wish I was there. What's wrong with me? And I'm like, because your butt's going in different seats, right? So journaling like this or visualizing like this can really help organize what feels like a circus in there sometimes. As you're talking about the snarky teenager, I was wondering, do you think that part is that internal critic that's always like, you're too fat, you need to get to the gym? Is that the part that's berating me in my head? (laughs) It certainly could be. Again, there are nuances here. So when I said critical professor, that one has a very specific flavor about, um, you know, my grammar policing or... Actually, the first time I went to, I'd listened to Michelle Chalfont's podcast for probably two years and I had the opportunity to go to a weekend workshop with her. And I was so excited, paid the money, got the hotel I'm there, got my journal. And the first thing she talked about was auras. Now, I definitely have a bit of a hippie side and I've definitely got some woo-woo, but my critical professor has always told me to keep that shit under wraps. I'm like, don't lead with that, you know? And and I didn't know my critical professor quite yet, but she led with that. And I just remember kind of having in my head this wah, wah, wah. And I just sat there like this for the first half of the day and doing meditations. I couldn't get there. So like the second meditation, I was like, all right, there's a part in the room. What do you need me to hear? Here I am doing a parts workshop. What do you need me to hear? And it was like you could hear his like his like uh, padded patched elbows be like, all right, here, let me tell you. Let me get my tweed jacket on and tell you that you have worked too hard as an academic to come here and learn about auras. And if you bring this shit to your clients, they are going to think you are a woo woo crazy person and you're going to lose all credibility and you're going to lose your business and you're going to end up homeless. And I'm like, damn, dude, that's a lot. Okay. And I was like... So what I hear you say is you're worried that she's leading with things that that aren't academically, you know, stringent enough. Absolutely, he says. Okay. Well, I was like, here's the deal. I've already paid the money. I'm here. How about if we do this? Why don't you go hang out outside? Let me absorb us all in. I'm going to take tons of notes. I'm going to get all the handouts. And when I get home, before I integrate any of this into my work or my clients, I want you to sit with me at my desk and I want you to help me say, this is Michelle Shelfont and this is Catherine. And I'll need you there for that because I agree. Like I have built my business on a certain type of, of, of rubric and I, you've been part of that. And he's like, all right, have fun. And I didn't, I was like able to meditate every time I got into all the exercises and I did that when I got home and there's a lot from that workshop I've never brought into clients and a lot that I was able to because I got him to quiet and exit stage left. Right. So when you're asking about your critical, like the body image and stuff, it could be some snarky teen. It could be, though, there's definitely some adaptive piece, right? Because your adaptive child might tell you what you're supposed to look like. Hmm. Right? right. Very tuned into what's supposed to be. So I would guess that for you, especially with body image stuff, that one might be its very own special seat at the table. Another great book I will put in the show notes is Life Without Ed. Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. About personifying your eating disorder as Ed yeah. eating disorder and talking to it. And so this that part's work as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had some success with, um, you know, kind of building compassion for myself and reparenting my inner child by I have a a picture of myself with my little sister when I was three and she was just a a little baby. And I had that as the the home screen on my phone for a while. So I pick up my phone and see little toothless me holding my little sister. And I would talk to her and I'd call her sweetie because this is what I call my kids. Hi, sweetie. Yes. How are you Mm -hmm. doing? You're doing a good job. I know you're trying to take care of your sister and you're trying to be a good kid and it's okay. You don't have to be scared. I got you. (laughs) So trying to just visually see that little version of me and make the emotional associations I have with my own kids of like compassion and love and understanding Mm -hmm. and being 
the loving parent. I had a little bit of success with that. Yes. And it's easy Ugh. to let it go. We've got to keep bringing it in. It's just like, I mean, like with meditation, wow, you know, I'm feeling so calm. I don't think I need to meditate anymore. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's why I'm calm because I've been meditating. It's like, wow, I'm feeling good. I can change my screensaver. Mm, maybe not. Maybe we need those reminders yeah. <laughs> to keep the dialogue rolling with these parts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Our hour is up and it went so quickly because I just love talking to you. Um, same, same. But we are going to have. Uh, another couple opportunities to see each other and talk. So you mentioned the being better at being bad week. We are both going to be at the Hedo Takeover hosted by Naughty Jim starting January 6th. I think there are actually still rooms available. So if you are a totally last minute person and you're wanting to jump on that, you could come to Hedo with us and with Naughty Jim. But we are also launching a very exciting new project. So, yes. yay! As part of Sapio Tours, we are going to do a Women of the Lifestyle Wellness Weekend. Catherine and I are partnering to host an event for women only. So this could be women who are just considering the lifestyle and maybe want to talk through some of their fears and insecurities before they get into it. It could be women who have been in the lifestyle for decades and are still excited about the idea of sitting down with a group of women and sharing some of their wisdom, maybe having some of their questions answered. And we're going to do this April 25th to 28th in Martinsburg, West Virginia. I'm going to bring in a chef to do healthy meal prep for us. Uh, I'm going to lead some reflective writing workshops. Catherine is going to lead some group coaching sessions. She's also going to be our in-house yoga instructor. And so we are very, very excited to continue this conversation with more badass women of the lifestyle, April 25th to 28th. If you want to know more about it, go to sapiotours.com and click on the Women's Retreat tab. Yes, I was going to say, make sure you bring your journals when you come to, if you get to come to that um, Women in the Lifestyle Wellness Weekend, because we will definitely be doing some writing, um, as Kate mentioned, and then we might as well check in, see if we can do a little screenplay writing with your parts. So we will have some journal prompts mm -hmm. to help you with just what we were talking about today. Um, and I'm so excited. Thank you for asking me to do this. And you didn't sell this place nearly enough. This is a freaking gorgeous modern mansion on a river with a hot tub, with kayaks, with stand-up paddle boards right on a river. I mean, when you hear West Virginia, you are not going to believe these pictures. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> and um, and I envisioned it like, like summer camp. You know, we've got mm -hmm. 18 bunk beds. So we're all going to pack in there. We're going to bring our pajamas and slippers. Um, I think it's going to be a really rich time of, of connection and sharing and healing for so many people. I love, let's come full circle that you said it's like summer camp. And remember as an 18 year old, I was teaching stress reduction workshops to campers at a summer camp. <laughs> there you go. You're right back there. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Um, yes. So one thing I'll mention, I am going to, we'll, we'll put the books that we've mentioned in the podcast that we've mentioned in the show notes, as well as I'm going to do a, a discounted version for my musical chairs webinar. It's about an hour, but a deeper dive into these chairs. And some tips for how to, how to manage them. We, as, as Kate mentioned, we're going to be at Hito. Miche, one of my other coaches and I will be, um, talking about triggers and why they happen. Fight, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. We're going to be teaching couples yoga and individual yoga. We're going to give some regulation tools for individuals and couples when they are triggered. Our group is going to be at the Miami PCAP at the end of May and also the um, San Antonio PCAP in October. So our group will be, we're getting out and about this year. We also have some holiday specials. We have some self-learning courses. And if you buy those, you get a free webinar um, as our as our holiday gift to you. And we always encourage people to remember that there's you. And there's your partner or partners. And then there's also the entity between you, but the relationship. 
and your relationship needs love and attention and maybe even some gifts too. So give your relationship and yourselves the gift of coaching or learning, whether it's books or courses of ours, coaching, continuing to listen to podcasts together and journaling about them. But don't forget your relationship this holiday season. Thank you so much, Catherine, for being here with us and for saving my marriage. (laughs) It's a beautiful marriage to be part of saving. You all did the work, but I certainly loved holding some space for you. I appreciate you. And you. The interesting thing about doing a podcast is it seems to be all about communication, but all the communication is in one direction. It's from us to you. And we are actually the kind of people who like to hear from others. So there are two ways to do that. The first is to connect with us in person at an event. We are going to be at Libertines Carnival Miami, October 20th to 23rd, and their soiree event in Montreal, December 8th to 10th. Yes, and I believe they're both sold out, but there may be a day pass option available. So go to the link in the show notes and you'll be able to find out how to do that. We're also in 2024 going to be at Naughty Jim's Be Better at Being Bad event at Hedo. We'll provide more details on that as we get closer to the event date. You can also contact us online. We're on Twitter at Monogamish One, Instagram at The Monogamish Marriage. We have our blog at www.themonogamishmarriage.com. And you can also find us on OnlyFans. So I am under the name Liam underscore Landon and Kate is under the name Kate Monogamish, all one word. You could also just email us at themonogamishmarriage at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye for now.